You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution Podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution Podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is the second part in our series on Nellie Bly began a race around the world in 1889 in an attempt to beat the fictitious Phileas Fogg from the Jules Verne novel Around the World in 80 Days. Last time we left Bly in Calais, France. Her next step was to catch a train to Brindisi, Italy, on the Adriatic Sea. From there, it was a ship to Egypt, through the Suez Canal, and then on to Asia. But as we heard last time, Bly was not just racing against Phileas Fogg. A rival newspaper, Cosmopolitan, had decided to send its own reporter around the world, going west instead of east. The reporter's name was Elizabeth Bisland, and we left her on the Pacific Ocean on a steamship heading for Japan. In an interesting twist, Bly did not know that she had a rival racing against her, as Cosmopolitan had waited until Bly was on her ship heading across the Atlantic to announce they were giving her a challenge. And despite the international telegraph system, word had not reached Europe regarding Bisland, so Bly was in the dark to the entire challenge. So, back to Nellie Bly. The 25-year-old Bly had taken a risky journey to Amiens, France, to meet with Jules Verne, the author of Around the World in 80 Days. It was a great public relations coup to meet the celebrated author, but it put her on a strict schedule, a schedule she could not afford to deviate from. She would arrive back in Calais just two hours before her train was set to depart for Brindisi. As a note, if you want to see a map of Bly's travel route, I have posted one on our website, explorerspodcast.com. So, traveling alone, Bly left Calais on November 23rd. The train to Brindisi, Italy was called the India Mail Train, and as you would expect, it was primarily for carrying mail. There was, however, a single car for passengers. The train headed south across France, past Paris, and reached Italy that night. As for Bly, she had barely slept for the past two days, so once the train took off, she slept a great deal. When the India Mail Train reached Italy the next day, Bly would be disappointed by the fog and write that her visits to England and France and now Italy were producing poor sightseeing opportunities. However, of greater concern was the fact that the train was running late. The Indian Mail Train would pull into Brindisi at 1.30 in the morning on November 25th. From here, she was to take the steamship Victoria, which was scheduled to depart at 3 a.m., leaving her only an hour and a half to transfer to the ship. Fortunately, Bly had her single bag and made a quick transition from train to ship. You can imagine this slight young woman rushing alone along the docks to her vessel. Once on board Victoria, Bly judged that she had enough time to run to the nearby telegraph office and send a message to New York. 
She would get off her message with time to spare, but shortly thereafter she would hear a ship whistle announcing the ship's departure. She was mortified, thinking her ship had sailed early. Bly rushed to the docks, only to see a different ship pulling away, and Victoria still in port. No doubt it was one of those heart attack moments. Anyhow, she would make her connection, again, just barely. Bly would sail from Brindisi, her schedule intact, but still oblivious to the challenge being offered by Elizabeth Bisland. Two days later, on November 25th, the headlines in the New York world would shout out, quote, Nellie Bly heard from, end quote. The paper also wrote an editorial about Bly's journey, vowing again that she would not use any special trains or chartered ships, and they added that, quote, imitators may spring up in various quarters, end quote. That was a deliberate jab at Elizabeth Bislin and her paper, Cosmopolitan. As we talked about in the last episode, Bly's trip was being picked up by papers around the nation. There were stories being written about the brave and plucky girl attempting to do what no one else had ever done. For Americans, they were proud that one of their own was trying to break the record. However, I will add that not everyone loved Nellie Bly. Some saw her as an uncouth muckraker and scoffed at her journey, seeing it as a publicity stunt and not real news. But most Americans were proud of her, and newspapers quickly recognized that stories about Nellie Bly garnered higher sales, so they kept writing more of them. And all over the country, people began to track Nellie Bly's progress. At Bly's newspaper, The New York World, they would be forced to create an excursion editor, someone whose sole duty was to handle all of the Nellie Bly-related publicity. So, Bly was on board the steamship Victoria, which was operated by the Peninsular and Oriental Company, usually called the P&O. Like the India mail train that Bly had traveled on to Brindisi, the Victoria operated as a mail ship for the British government, and mail was the communications tool that kept the British Empire running smoothly. Unfortunately, Bly would find the English to be rude and arrogant. She did not like them. It was an attitude that she would hold toward the English all her life. However, she did admire their deep loyalty and pride toward their queen and country. Despite the attitudes of her hosts, she found her voyage on Victoria to be much nicer than the early transatlantic crossing. The Mediterranean was warm and sunny, and the waters were not choppy like the Atlantic. However, Bly would run into a strange problem on this voyage, and later ones as well, and that was men stalking her. As a single woman traveling alone, she was an object of curiosity, and now that she was in Europe, no one on the ship really knew much, if anything, about her worldwide journey. Early on, a rumor spread that she was an eccentric American heiress, which of course prompted all sorts of interest in her. One British man proposed to her, telling her matter-of-factly that he was from an aristocratic family but lacked money or lands, and he just wanted to marry a woman that would keep him living his fancy life. After two other men inquired about her, Bly began to spread the story that she was a poor, sick woman who was taking an ocean voyage to improve her health. The trip, she told everyone, had been financed by a charity. As you can imagine, that sent her marriage suitors to flight. Victoria would arrive in Port Said, Egypt, the entrance to the Suez Canal, on November 27th. The ship would stop for the rest of the day and take on coal. This allowed Bly and some of the other passengers to go ashore. As you can imagine, Bly was a naturally curious woman. In this and in most other ports, she would describe the people and sights that she was experiencing. In Port Said, she described the many nationalities that roamed the cities, but she also took note of the misery and the squalor. She describes the city and its people as, quote, dirty, end quote. It is a term that she would use often. Victoria would sail through the Suez Canal on November 28th. The ship had to go very slow, as they did not want to cause any waves, which eroded the sandbanks. 
though I rightly noted the amazing architectural achievement that she was seeing. The canal had been completed in 1869. It had taken a decade to finish, and upwards of 100,000 workers had died during its construction, many from epidemics such as cholera. The completion of the canal would have an immediate and dramatic effect on worldwide commerce, and Nellie Bly was now directly benefiting from the canal's construction. Due to the slow speed, Victoria would take a full day to navigate the length of the canal. Once through, the ship would head south through the Red Sea. On December 2nd, Victoria would reach Aden in modern-day Yemen, one day ahead of schedule. Bly figured that at this point she had traveled 7,000 miles from New York, which was pretty accurate. And most importantly, Bly was now ahead of schedule, only by a day, but still she was doing as well as she could expect. In Aden, the ship stopped to take on coal. The passengers were warned not to go ashore, but Bly couldn't help herself and went exploring with others from Victoria. The next day, Victoria would set sail across the Arabian Sea for Colombo Ceylon. It would be a 2,500-mile voyage across the Arabian Sea. So, while Nellie Bly is at sea bound for Ceylon, I want to step back a few days and head to New York. As we discussed earlier, Bly's newspaper, The New York World, was heavily promoting her journey, and interest was growing. But in late November, the world would come up with an idea that would set off Nellie Bly mania. Well, it really wasn't called that. I just made that up. But you get the idea. The world decided to start a contest. They would offer a first-class trip to Europe, including visits to London, Rome, and Paris, to the person who could predict the exact time that Nellie Bly would return to New York. People were even allowed to predict the time down to the tenth of a second. The contest began on December 1st. It was called the Nellie Bly Guessing Match, and to participate you had to clip a coupon from the Sunday edition of The World, write down your prediction, and deliver it to the world's offices. The response was massive. On the first day, the world received tens of thousands of submissions. At this time, the New York world had a weekly circulation of over 2.1 million. That week, sales would rise by over 300,000. The coupons were originally only going to be part of the Sunday paper, but demand was so great, the paper began to print them every day. The contest would fuel Nellie Bly mania. People now had a personal stake in Nellie Bly's journey, and just as important, people did not think of it as Bly versus Bisland. It was now about Nellie Bly and when she would arrive back in New York. Most guesses were between 60 and 100 days, but people sent in all sorts of crazy answers, often explaining how they came to the conclusion. One woman sent a note saying that Marco Polo's spirit was traveling with Nellie Bly, and the spirit had told her how long the trip would take. As you can imagine, that woman did not win. The nation's love affair with Bly would balloon with the contest. A clothing company made a replica Nellie Bly dress, People named their newborn children after her, and there were songs and poetry written in her honor. So while she sailed east toward Ceylon and Nellie Bly fever spread in America, Elizabeth Bislin was making her way west aboard the steamship Oceanic. Bislin would sight Japan on December 8, 1889. She would land in Yokohama, just south of Tokyo. The ship had made outstanding time, reaching port three days early. From here, the plan was for Cosmopolitan to charter a ship for Bislin. The ship would take her to Hong Kong, where she would board a steamship for Italy. She would then travel on a train across France and catch another steamship to New York. If things went right, it would take 74 days, maybe even as few as 70 days. Now, if you're saying to yourself, hey, that's not really fair for Cosmo to charter a ship for Bislin, is it? And the answer is, well, probably not. But Cosmopolitan, unlike the New York world, had made no promises to the public with regard to how they were going to get their journalists around the world. This was the newspaper business, and they were about selling papers. If they could upstage a rival, well, to heck with being fair. 
However, the chartered ship was never properly arranged, and Bislin would be forced to take a short train ride to Tokyo and get back on the Oceanic. Thus, her three-day advantage was squandered. But it had not been a terrible blow, as Oceanic was a fast ship and the weather was good, and she was still on schedule to defeat Bly. Bislin would reach Hong Kong on December 15th, one day ahead of schedule. However, Bislin would run into one of the problems that always threatened her and Nellie Bly, and that was mechanical problems. Bislin was supposed to take a German ship, the Prussian, but the ship's screw had broken and she was sidelined. But as luck would have it, another ship, a British mail vessel, the Thames, was leaving for Ceylon with a stop in Singapore, and she successfully made the switch. The Thames was a slower vessel than the Prussian, but she would leave several days before the latter vessel, effectively negating her misfortune. So, with Bislin heading for Ceylon, let's get back to Nellie Bly. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Bly would make good time across the Arabian Sea, her ship arriving in Ceylon two days early. She would come ashore in Colombo on one of the native catamarans. Bly now had two days to explore, and she took full advantage of it. We have to remember that Bly was traveling alone, and many people were afraid for her safety but in every port she generally was accompanied by one or more of the ship's passengers or crew as she explored the city. In Colombo, Bly noted the native peoples, their customs, clothing, and food. Here she had her first ever taste of curry, and she loved it. This was also the first time that she rode in a Jin Rikasha, a small two-wheeled cart-like passenger vehicle common in Asia. We often call them rickshaws nowadays, and they are still used all over the world. They are traditionally pulled by a man, although many are now pulled by bikes. Bly was initially weirded out by having a man holler around in a rickshaw, but she loved it. She would visit the local theaters, newspapers, and temples while in the city. Bly was set to depart on December 10th on the steamship Oriental, but like Elizabeth Bislin, she was going to run into her own problems. These ships were mail ships, operating at the behest of the British Crown, and the Oriental could not leave port until all the other scheduled mail ships had come to Colombo. One ship, the Nepal, was late, and December 10th came and went, and the Nepal did not appear, and then another day passed, and yet another. As you can imagine, Bly grew increasingly distressed. She had suffered from migraine headaches much of her life, and here she got a headache for the first time since starting her journey. As for the late mail ship, the Nepal, Bly was reportedly to have said of her, quote, may she go to the bottom of the bay when she does get in, end quote. Bly knew that time was growing thin as she had to change to a new steamship in Hong Kong on December 28th. The Nepal would finally arrive on December 13th, and the Oriental would set sail later that day. Nellie Bly had spent five days in Ceylon. Her trip thus far had taken 29 days and covered nearly 9,000 miles, and now she was behind schedule. On December 12th, the New York World's headline said, quote, Nellie Bly delayed, end quote. Thankfully, Bly's itinerary, which was often scheduled to make connections within hours of each other, included a two-day layover in Hong Kong, 
so despite leaving Colombo three days late, there was a good chance she could make up for the lost time and not miss her connection. The voyage to Hong Kong, which was about 3,500 miles, would include a stop in Penang on the Malay Peninsula and in Singapore. Thankfully, Bly's new ship, the Oriental, was fast and the weather was favorable. The Oriental would reach the Malacca Strait, which separates the Malay Peninsula and the island of Sumatra, in record pace. The steamship covered 1,300 miles in just three days, making up much of the time lost waiting in Ceylon. Bly was now in the waters formerly sailed upon by other explorers, such as the legendary Zheng Ha and his Chinese treasure fleet some 500 years earlier. The Oriental docked in Penang on the Malay Peninsula on December 16th. The captain, determined to make up lost time, docked for only six hours to take on coal and essential supplies. Bly would head ashore for a short time in the company of a man from the ship. They would hire a rickshaw and visit a picturesque waterfall that was a favorite of the tourists, then return to the Oriental. On December 18th, Bly would reach Singapore. Here, she was roughly halfway around the world. She had departed 33 days earlier from New York. She was pretty much on time with her schedule. The biggest worry was the rough weather that dominated the South China Sea this time of year, which she was about to head into. In Singapore, Bly would explore the city with a Welshman, simply known as Dr. Brown. Again, she observed the locals and visited the sites. As in America, she took note of the limitations put on women. She became indignant when she could not enter a Hindu temple because of her gender. Bly would also acquire a new companion while in Singapore, a macaque monkey. She paid $3 for the animal, which was about two feet tall. Never one to pass up embellishing a story, she would later claim that the monkey was given to her by a Raja. While she was quite taken with the monkey, Bly reported the feelings weren't mutual. She would later say that he was a, quote, savage little fellow, end quote. She also noted that the monkey seemed to like everyone but her. Bly would try out several names on her new pet, but eventually settled on McGinty, a character from a popular song at the time. The next step in Bly's journey was Hong Kong, which required sailing northeast into the South China Sea. This time of year, the winds would often be unfavorable for an eastern-bound vessel, and the Oriental would run into a monsoon as it headed for Hong Kong. Bly found the monsoon to be terrifying and fearsome, but she also noted it was amazing and magnificent at the same time. It is the sort of thing you would expect from a journalist, fascinated and enthralled by something so terrible. In addition to the monsoon, the trip to Hong Kong would have her, again, fighting off various romantic suitors. She would tell a man she was engaged to one of the ship's officers to try and throw him off her trail. It didn't work, and she had to make a habit of always going to places with a companion so he wouldn't bother her. One other thing to note, during the voyage to Hong Kong, in the third week of December, Bly's ship, the Oriental, would pass the Thames, the ship carrying Elizabeth Bisland. So, despite the storms, Bly's steamship would push hard and reach Hong Kong on December 23, 1889. The Oriental had not only made up the three days it had lost by waiting for the mail ship in Ceylon, it had arrived in Singapore two days early. In fact, the trip had gone so well, the Oriental had broken the record for the fastest sailing time from Colombo to Hong Kong. So, Nellie Bly's luck was holding. She was now back on schedule. She would have several days to relax in Hong Kong before the next leg of her journey, which was a steamship to Japan. However, Bly was in for a shock when she reached Hong Kong. An agent at the Occidental and Oriental Steamship Company, when finding out who Bly was, told her, quote, you're going to be beaten, end quote. And that is how Nellie Bly finally learned about Elizabeth Bislin and the race around the world. When Bly heard about Bislin's challenge, she professed to be disinterested, but it was an act. 
She resented the attempt to upstage her grand story, although she tried to limit expectations. She would say that she had set out to beat Phileas Fogg, and if she got back to New York in less than 80 days, well, that would be just fine. But don't believe that for a second. If Bislin beat Bly to New York, it would be humiliating. For Bly, however, there was little she could do about it. Her schedule was set. An ocean voyage to Japan, then another to America, and then a train ride to New York. Nellie Bly would spend the next five days in Hong Kong. She would find the city dirty and chaotic. However, with time to burn, a rarity for her, she took time to explore. One day she took a boat 90 miles up the Pearl River to the city of Canton. The riverboat was large, capable of transporting up to 2,000 people, and her captain was an American. On the trip upriver, Bly visited the Chinese below deck, one of the few times she mingled with the lower classes during her entire round-the-world expedition. In Canton, Bly would be led around by a guide, this time a local man who spoke fluent English. It was the only time she employed a local person to show her the sights, and she seemed to love the adventure of it all. Canton, which was a city of a million people, was teeming with activity, and her local guide showed her places she never imagined. She was taken to the city's execution grounds, where eleven men had been beheaded the day before. When asked if she wanted to see a head, she readily agreed, thinking it was a joke. Instead, a head was removed from a large jar and presented to her. She also noted that the local women were fascinated with their gloves, which they were always wanting to touch. As mentioned earlier, Bly had developed a dislike for the English. She found them pompous and arrogant, and she had spent weeks on the receiving end of snide remarks about the United States. So when she came to the American consulate in Canton, Bly saw the stars and stripes for the first time since leaving New York. Tired of the jabs at America, she announced, quote, That is the most beautiful flag in the world, and I'm ready to whip anyone who says it isn't. End quote. So resolved did she appear, no one decided to argue with her. Also, in a shift from the often superficial commentary about the locals, Bly took note of the opium use in China. The opium war in 1839 had started when the Chinese had fought to prevent opium from being brought into their country. But opium was big money for England, so big that they had started a war over the right to sell it in China. China had lost the war. In addition to giving Hong Kong to the British, the nation was now cursed with millions of opium addicts. It was a story that would have been worthy of Nellie Bly the reporter back on the streets of New York. Bly would spend Christmas Day in Hong Kong. She received a telegram from the world wishing her a Merry Christmas. Before leaving Hong Kong, Bly traveled to the top of Victoria Peak, the island's highest mountain, and took time to go shopping. The latter was something she had avoided in order to keep travel light and nimble. But with only a few stops left on her journey, she decided to give up her one-bag theory and start getting stuff. In Hong Kong, she bought a large Chinese temple chair, along with other items. On December 28th, Nellie Bly boarded the Occidental and Oriental steamship Oceanic, the same vessel that Elizabeth Bislin had sailed on across the Pacific not long ago. Her destination was Yokohama, Japan, which she would reach on January 2nd, 1890. Like Elizabeth Bislin, Nellie Bly approved of Japan. She appreciated how clean it was and how graceful and cheerful the people were. Bly departed Yokohama on January 7th aboard Oceanic. She developed a friendship with the chief engineer, a man named William Allen. Allen vowed to help Nellie Bly win her race around the world and told her that he wanted to try and break the Pacific Crossing record. In fact, he wrote the following on the ship's engines. Quote, For Nellie Bly, we'll win or die. End quote. So with Nellie Bly heading towards San Francisco... That is where we are going to wrap up her story for this episode, but I want to check in with her rival, Elizabeth Bislin, before we leave. Bislin had left Hong Kong for Colombo, Ceylon in mid-December, 
As we noted earlier, she would pass Nellie Bly a week or so later and arrive in Singapore just before Christmas. She would reach Ceylon on January 1, 1890. From there, she boarded the Peninsular and Oriental steamship Britannia, bound for Brindisi, Italy. As you can see, she was essentially retracing the steps of Bly, only in reverse. She would stop in Aden in Yemen on January 8th, then head up the Red Sea and through the Suez Canal. She would reach Brindisi, Italy on January 16th. Now, Brindisi, Italy is where I'm going to leave Elizabeth Bislin for today. She was in good shape. Her next steps were a train to the north coast of France and then a steamship to New York. As for Nellie Bly, she was sailing eastward across the Pacific, bound for San Francisco. After that, it would be a train ride to New York City and the conclusion of her journey. So that wraps up today's episode. Join us next time for the conclusion of Nellie Bly and the race around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it, and I will see you next time. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.